Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united in faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, Through David, so long ago afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, as we finish off the time last time, we looked at Israel as they were hardening their hearts towards God in the wilderness. And as we come into it this time, he starts to, to deal with them on this, on this entering into God's rest. As we consider this idea of entering into God's rest, we need to think of what that means or what, what does rest entail? Well, rest usually involves obviously a stopping to, to work. And that is involved. In fact, it points to God's creation and that he ceased from his working. He took a rest. If we think of it in the context of Israel's old wanderings in the wilderness, then I think we have to connect it to stopping roaming around. Right? They were wandering around in the wilderness. So if you think of them kind of as out in the wilderness, you think of them as kind of restless. They didn't have a place where they could settle in and make home and, and get comfortable. They were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. So for them to enter this time of Canaan rest was an opportunity for them to finally settle into the land that God had promised them and be at rest. As we look at this passage, it's dealing with that. It's, it's this idea of entering into God's rest. He mentions a few different rests, tracing it through the Old Testament. He's warning them against missing God's rest, but then he begins to explain what he means about this rest of God. And to do that, he goes all the way back to the beginning. And he starts in creation. And he says, look in, in creation. It says somewhere, and he knows exactly where it's written, but it says it says somewhere that God rested from all of his work. And Adam and Eve were resting in him. There was peace in their relationship with God. There was The Bible says that they would walk with God and talk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And everything was just good. They were rested. They were at home. And so he traces that. And he says, see, there was a, a rest in the beginning, that rest with God. That can't be the only rest that's involved because we see later God promises his children rest when they get into the promised land. 
And so we have what we would call a Canaan rest. When they get to the promised land, the land of Canaan, they will have rest. No more wandering in the wilderness. We'll finally be home in our land. We'll be at rest in our relationship with God. And so we will have this rest of God. And he says we know that they'll have a rest going into the promised land because of this statement that he made. He says, I swore to them, you will not enter my rest. Now, what is he talking about there? It gets a little confusing, but you've got to follow the flow of thought. He's saying we know that there's still a rest other than the creation rest because God told these people, you're not entering my rest. Well, if these people are held out from the rest of God, then it must mean there must be a rest there for other people to enter somewhere. And it's in the promised land. So the point is that the people were supposed to come up to the promised land. When they got to the promised land, they refused to go in. They would not trust God and go into the promised land. And God said, okay, then you guys are going to be out here in the wilderness until all of you die off and your kids are going to be brought into the promised land instead. For 40 years, you'll be wandering in the wilderness. And that's the point. When Israel rebelled against God and he said, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And so Israel, because of their unbelief and their disobedience, One results in the other. God swore in his wrath, you will not enter my rest. But another generation comes up and Joshua leads them into the promised land. He leads them into God's rest. And then he goes on and he quotes from David. David was much later. David would be the second king of Israel. And David talks about the rest of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says if Joshua had given them rest then there wouldn't have been this other rest that was talked about by David. What is the rest that he's talking about? In verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. So what we would see at this point would be what we would call the salvation rest. So God rested on the seventh day, and Adam and Eve enjoyed that. Sin broke that rest. God promised this promised rest, this this future rest, which Israel got to experience for a time in the promised land, but then also spoke of another rest coming in the future as David would look forward. And he says, so there still remains a promised rest for the people of God. Well, depending on what he means by the people of God, if the people of God is referring only to Israel, then it's probably talking about the kingdom stage where Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years in the future. And Israel is the promised People. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about, since this is in the church age, I think he's talking about uh, all of us who believe in Christ. There is this promised rest for the people of God. This is what he describes by this sentence. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That's where we have to come to. That's the point we have to come to to inherit salvation. The point where we rest from our works. Uh, let, let me explain this by my own story. I knew God existed, and I thought that's what faith in God means. I also thought that I was living a, a decent life, fairly moral, upstanding life. And so that's really what I was trusting in. But when I went to church with Lisa for the first time, and, and I heard what they were talking about there, and I remember after service that night, the pastor came up to me and he said, what do you think you could do to know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And I said, well, I think I'm already going. But here's the, here's the deal. What is the reason that I thought I was already going? I said, you know, I've always believed in God and and I've lived a pretty good life. And so that was my reason. What am I depending on? The foundation for my confidence of going to heaven relied in my own works. It's because of my works, because I am a decent enough person that God is going to let me into heaven. And so I was still trusting in my works. I was still trusting in my own efforts. The problem with that is 
I haven't done enough good works. I can't do enough good works because I've also sinned. And it's not like a good work replaces a sin. The sin is still there, no matter how many good works we've done. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight. And so I was still banking on my works, my efforts, my quality of life. I hadn't rested. You know what? About a year and a half or so went on from that time. And uh, I was involved in church, got very religious, but still very lost. And finally, one day, I realized why Jesus died. I realized that he died for me. He died because I wasn't good enough. And I received him as my Lord and Savior. At that moment, you know what I did? I stopped working. Now, not that I don't still try to live a good life and do good things and all that. I do, but, but not for that same reason. I'm not working for my salvation. I'm working out my salvation. I'm trying to flush that out in my life. But it cannot be the source of my salvation. It is a result of my salvation. Crucial difference. Before, I was still working to achieve my righteousness before God. Now I've stopped. I'm resting. He said, I entered the rest of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. So just as God finished from his work in the beginning, I have finished from my work and I am resting completely in Christ. That's what it's talking about. He who is resting. We rest. We stop from all our labors just as God did from his. That is the point of salvation. Jesus offered that to us. When we, when we see Jesus come on the scene, the rest that was offered in the Old Testament, Jesus is offering in the New. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament is the commandment for the Sabbath day. Sabbath day was given to the nation of Israel as a sign of something to come, of this promised rest of God. The Sabbath day, just as God rested on the seventh day after he completed his work, Israel was supposed to rest on the seventh day to show that they were participating in the rest of God. It was a big deal. They had more than one kind of Sabbath. They had that Sabbath that they were to do every, every week. They had a Sabbath that they were supposed to do every seven years. Every seven-year period, they're supposed to give the land a one-year rest. In fact, you know, that's why Israel would end up being carried off into captivity. They would be carried captive to the Babylonians for 70 years. And one of the, the reason it was 70 years is because they had not let the land rest for 490 years. They had skipped 70 Sabbaths. So God said, you know what, I'm going to let your enemies come in and they're going to haul you out of here. They're going to take you captive. And the land in Israel is going to lay desolate. It's going to rest for those 70 years. So it was a big deal. But when we get to the New Testament, we begin to see this a little bit in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath day, healing people on the Sabbath day, the people are getting all upset. What are you doing healing on the Sabbath day? You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath day. Jesus would command a person that had to be carried in on a mat. Jesus would tell him to get up and carry his mat back home, which was a violation of the Sabbath day. Now, obviously you're going to heal on the Sabbath day because as Jesus pointed out, you're supposed to do good on the Sabbath day, not do evil. But what about the guy carrying his mat? Jesus commanded him to carry his mat, which was a violation, actually, of the Sabbath. So you see Jesus trumping the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord also of the Sabbath. And so he's overruling it a little bit during his ministry. And you know what we find during the ministry of the apostles? That is, it is almost completely gone. This idea of the Sabbath day. In Colossians is where we see it. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or, and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
So in the New Testament, you, you know, we celebrate on Sunday, first day of the week. It's not the Sabbath. We celebrate on the first day because it's the resurrection day. It's the day Jesus resurrected again from the dead. And so we celebrate it on that day. That's why the church meets on Sunday. It's not the Sabbath. The Jewish people had the Sabbath. Now, there are some groups out there that still worship on the Sabbath on Saturday. But I I think they're really misunderstanding the whole concept of Sabbath. This is not our Sabbath day. You know what is our Sabbath day? Christ. Christ is our Sabbath. Christ is our rest. Now, I'm not arguing against setting aside a day in time. We call this the Lord's Day and we focus on Him. But Christ is our Sabbath. Christ is where we find our rest. That whole day of rest thing that God did with the Israelites through all those generations was just like the sacrifices, just like so many other things in the Old Testament that were just a little glimpse of Christ. They were a picture of Christ. It's in Christ that we stop our working. We're no longer trying to achieve our own righteousness. We just rest in Him because we already have the righteousness. He imputes that to us. Well, that's understanding the Sabbath. So as we're trying to understand the message that He has for us, He's saying, look, God rested in the beginning. Adam and Eve enjoyed that, but it was marred by sin. We see the promised rest go on in the promise of resting in the promised land to Abraham's descendants, but they refused. So God commanded, you will not enter my rest. But then the next generation did get to enter that rest. But then David later spoke of a time also of this rest that was continuing to be promised to the people of God. And we see finally his point. Jesus is that rest. Now as we consider that, the next thing that we need to consider that we see in the passage is acting upon God's rest. Remember when we were doing an overview of the book of Hebrews? We saw there are a lot of places that he uses, he'd say, let us do this and let us do that and let us do this. Well, in this chapter right here, there's four of them. And we're going to use those as our outline of the actions that he's calling us to. The first action that he calls us to is he says, let us fear. In chapter 4, verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And the point that he's making is he's looking back at Old Testament Israel where God said, I swore in my wrath you will not enter my rest. From chapter 3 on up till now, he's been pointing out it's because of their unbelief, which resulted in their disobedience, that God shut them out of the promised land. These people were people that had put their faith in Christ, but now they're looking at going back to their old life, turning away from Him. And He's saying, look, if you can do that, if you can turn away from Him, you're committing the same acts of unbelief that Old Testament Israel did when they turned away from God out in the wilderness. And He's saying, you know what? You better fear. You better fear for your souls if you can do that. In our day and age, we get, we get away from that idea of fearing God. Fearing God is a very biblical term. Fearing God is a very practical term. A very accurate term. God is to be feared. It says it all through the Bible. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He tells the people, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These days, we have feminized Jesus. We make Him so soft and cuddly. He is like the Lion of Judah. He spoke harshly many times throughout his gospel. In fact, he, through the gospels, in fact, he, he taught more about the existence of hell than he did the existence of heaven. Hell is a reality. And you know, sometimes we get the idea that over everybody just needs to be wooed to the, to God because of his love, because of his compassion, because of his mercy, and he's made to look all soft and everything all the time. Well, those things are very true. God is loving and compassionate and merciful, but he's also angry with the wicked every day. He's also the God that says, I swore in my wrath, you will not enter my rest. That's who we also are dealing with. And to not fear that is foolishness. 
That's ridiculous. If we're at that point where we haven't trusted Christ or where we maybe have made a profession of faith, but we're thinking of going back the other direction, fear ought to be there. That ought to be natural. If fear doesn't drive you to the cross, then I'm I'm not sure if you get the cross (laughs) too many other ways. It's through recognition that we've sinned against a holy God and that because of that there's judgment upon us and we need to fear. That's exactly what he leads us to at the end of the, toward the end of the passage as we look up there toward the verses 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about our judgment. And it says we stand before the judgment of God and the Word of God is over us and works in our heart in a piercing manner. The Word of God has the ability to pierce down into our very heart and soul, the joints and marrow. And he says God will do that in our judgment. There is nothing in our life, in our motives, in our actions, in our intentions even, that will not be open before God as he judges us. That ought to strike fear in our hearts. Now, there is definitely a difference. I remember the day I came to Christ, I feared. I knew where I was going if it wasn't for Jesus. I knew that I was going to hell, and I turned to Him and I embraced Him as my Savior. But you know where that brings me to then? That brings me to passages like Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and verse 32, Jesus would tell these, same, these people, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, all of a sudden, instantly, I got moved from a place of fear to a place of fear not. I was fearful of my condemnation because I recognized I was under it. And then as soon as I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I didn't fear. Fear not. I knew that my salvation was completely provided for, that I had nothing to fear now. Now, there's still a, there's still a fear that we exercise as Christians. There's a fear, but it's like the fear that you have, like I had of my dad when I was a kid. A fear that kind of kept me going the straight and narrow, kind of kept me doing the right thing. I didn't fear being condemned by my dad. I didn't fear being put to death by my dad or beat up by my dad. But I did fear his disapproval and I feared his punishments. And so there was that, but it was under a loving relationship. And we still have that. First Peter tells us, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor. So even as Christians, we still have a command and an ability to fear God, but it's a, it's a reverential awe kind of a fear. It's a fear that's within a loving relationship. So it's a different, completely different kind of fear. My first fear that I felt of God was a fear of being outside of his relationship and underneath his wrath. But while his loving kindness was extended to me. And so I quickly stepped into that loving kindness and embraced Christ as my Savior. And from that point, I went to fear not, but having a very deep fear, a very deep awe and reverence toward him. You know, in the same book, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, in verse 26 and following, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now remember, he's talking to these people that they have left the Old Testament Judaism, and they've embraced Christ, and they're thinking about going back to Old Testament Judaism and going back to the sacrificial system. And what he's telling them in here is, if you disobey after knowing the truth, after knowing about Christ, you disobey by turning back. He says, there is no more sacrifice for you. Those sacrifices that are still happening in the temple, they were at the time. He says, those are not real sacrifices. Those are not legitimate anymore. Those, those will do nothing for you before God. Because they were only a picture of what Jesus would do. And then he continues on, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you see, the first action that he calls them to in trying to enter, get them to enter Christ's rest or stay in Christ's rest is fear. He says, if you can turn your back and walk away, that, show, that shows you're an unbeliever. And if you're an unbeliever, you're under the wrath of God. I swore in my wrath. They will not enter my rest. And he says, that ought to strike fear in your heart. You know what I love about this passage? This passage starts out with that fear in verse 1. And when we get to verse 14, he's going to say, let us draw near. He's going to say, now we can come before God with confidence. And so what started out as fear ends up in confidence before God. You know what? That's, that's a path we got to take. If you haven't got to that place where you recognize where you were fearful before God because of your sin, because of the condemnation that you're under, then I, then I really doubt that you've gotten to the point where you can really be confident in your relationship with Him because it's not until we're fearful of Him that we embrace Christ as our Savior and we truly set aside our works and we enter His rest. And that's what he's compelling us to do. He's saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't put it off. Today, don't harden your heart. Enter that rest today. Well, secondly, he says, let us strive. Now, this is kind of interesting when you think about it. It's a little bit of a play on words, I think. He says, let us strive. We're striving to enter rest. What he's saying is, look, you need to be diligent to make sure that you're in that rest, is what he's saying. Let's look at verse 11 there. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so we're to be diligent about the idea of making sure that we're in that rest, making sure that we are believing, that we are resting in Christ, that we're not trusting in our own works, but we're actually depending on Him. And then that's when he goes into this passage that we already started to read in verse 12. And he says that the Word of God is living and active, sharpening two-edged sword. And he talks about it piercing down inside of us. You know, when I think about that idea of, of the Word of God cutting into me in a, ju- in a judging way, in fact, the word discernment is discerning the thoughts and intents of our heart. We get our word, English word critic from it. And so the point is, it's talking about God, God judging us. And as God's judging us, His Word is piercing down into our very heart, soul, joints, and marrows. And it's not just talking about dividing joints from marrows. It's talking about piercing down into the joints, piercing down into the marrows. I think as uh, Donald Guthrie put it, he says, it's nothing short of a permeation of the Word into every part of a man's being. Everything you ever wanted to hide from everybody else is on display. And it says that we're all naked before Him. We're all open before Him. That word open was used in two different ways in ancient Greek literature that we can find. And one of them was in a wrestling match. In a wrestling match where the guy had his opponent in like a chokehold. And so he's got him by the neck right here in front of him. You're face-to-face, eye-to-eye. Another one was used in a more of a military context. When you had your enemy, when you wanted to talk to him and get answers from him, you'd take your knife and you'd put it right under the chin. So the point of the knife is right here. And the whole purpose of doing that, we probably understand it better if we think about parenting. I know it's a weird time to go to parenting, but... But, uh, you know when you go into parenting and your kids do something and you start to question them on it, what do they do? You know, <laughs> they want to look anywhere but right in your face. Well, this was a technique that they would use when they're trying to get something out of their enemy. They'd stick the knife right here. What does it do? Well, it puts an end to any of this stuff. <laughs> no, no bowing your head. 
It, it kept them looking at you face to face, eye to eye. That's the point that he's making here. We come into judgment before God and we are eye to eye, nose to nose with God. And the ugliest about us is all open right before us. And there's no looking down. We're in that kind of judgment. And you see, that's why he's telling us, look, we need to, we need to make sure that we're resting in Christ. We need to make sure that we're being faithful to Christ, that we're remaining in His rest. These people were looking to turn in and going back on God. He says, let me just know, let you know what's in your future. If you do that, you're going to come up to the judgment day and you're going to be eye to eye with God. And it's not going to be pretty. He's to be feared. We need to be diligent about this. He also tells us, let us hold fast. Now verse 14. Now this is awesome. Uh, verse 14 and following, it's, it's a little bit hard to know which passage to put it in because most people look at the end of the warning passage at the end of verse 13. With us standing before God, having to give an account with everything laid bare. And His Word piercing into the very soul of who we are. But that was all done for a purpose of bringing us to verse 14. Because notice what it says. Since then we have a great high priest. Remember this is the conversation we left at the end of chapter 2. He was talking about Jesus, how great a high priest He is. So now he's picking back up with that. He says, now, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now you want it in this last two parts of this passage. There's so much more in there than we can cover today. So we're going to revisit that next week in more depth. But let me just skim it right now because it really needs to be in the context of what we're talking about today. Because he said, look, there's a rest of God, but you're in danger of missing it. If we miss the rest of God, it leaves us accountable before God and completely exposed and fearful before Him. But then he says, let us hold fast. Jesus Christ is our high priest. Our high priest does what? He comes in and he offers the sacrifice for the sin. He atones for for our guilt. And if we will rest in him, then what do we have? The last one that he's going to put up there is draw near. We're going to draw near to him. So if we hold fast our confidence, we draw near to him. And this this is where it all comes down to. Look at what it accomplishes in our life. That confidence that I talked about before. You know, we often look at that passage where it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, how many times have we quoted that verse to talk about how we can come before God and He hears all our prayers? That when I get in a tight spot, God's there for me. When I get in a, when I get in a situation, I can count on Him. I can come before Him confidently knowing that He's there for me, right? And that's all true. I'm not going to diminish all that. But I really think that the point that He's specifically talking about right now is the part that we just looked back verse 12 and 13. Our time of need, our greatest time of need in our whole life is in verses 12 and 13. When we are before the judgment of God, and everything is open and laid bare before Him, we are in our time of need. And He says at that moment, if you're resting in Christ, you have grace. You don't have to worry about what all is laid out on the table. You don't have to worry about what all is open before God. Because Christ as your high priest has already taken care of that. It's not really a passage for your prayer life. Even though, like I said, it does directly relate to it and we're proper to quote it in that way. It is primarily a passage about your salvation. It's primarily a passage that speaks to your tremendous need before God of a Savior. And how without a Savior, 
Your future is so horrible, you ought to tremble and quake at the idea of it. But because of our high priest, our future is so glorious and hopeful that we don't have to worry about the time when we can stand eye to eye because you're not going to be like that little child that wants to look down, wants to look away. You can stand there and look eye to eye with God at that judgment time because of what Jesus did for you. So the passage begins with us fearing, and rightly so. The passage ends with us standing nose to nose with God in complete confidence, not because of things that we have done, but because of our great high priest who has accomplished them for us.